Hey Siri. Mm-hmm. Play IRL podcast. Here's the podcast IRL. Online life is real life. Lots of us use virtual assistants. They're part of our everyday lives. We use them to check the weather or the time. Or if you're me, you might be like, hey Siri, play Beyonce. But speech recognition systems don't work equally well for everyone. They don't even exist for many languages. Big tech has stepped up to offer more diversity in their language models, for speech and more. But it comes with a new set of problems. How do I feel about big tech sort of paying attention to our marginalized or indigenous languages? I guess the first thing I wonder is why. Why do they care now? Do they genuinely care to ensure inclusivity online? Or did they finally realize that being more inclusive is better for them and their bottom lines? That's Kayoni Mahalona in New Zealand. We'll hear more from him in a bit. In this episode, we meet technology builders who are reclaiming speech recognition with and for their own language communities. This is IRL, an original podcast from Mozilla, the nonprofit behind Firefox. I'm Bridget Todd. This season, we meet people who are building artificial intelligence that puts people over profit. First, let's make a stop in the U.S. We're in Maryland, not far from where I live. I spent a year with Alexa, and I allowed the device to do whatever the device heard me see. This is Halcyon Lawrence. She's an associate professor of technical communication and information design at Towson University. Three years ago, she conducted an experiment with Amazon's home assistant, Alexa, which is pretty popular here in the U.S. So, for example, I would ask, can you set a 5.30 alarm? And the device would hear 5.50. And so I would just wake up at 5.50. I wanted to push and see what is the level of inconvenience, right? (laughs) That this device would allow me (laughs) to do. Halcyon grew up in Trinidad and Tobago. While Caribbean accents can still throw off voice tech by U.S. companies, the tech has improved so much that it altered the focus of Halcyon's research. So why is it important for technology to be able to understand us? Well, I think this is where it sort of speaks to the convenience. And the question that arises is convenient for whom? You know, the kinds of interactions that I have with most speech devices, like personal assistants, if they don't understand me, it's often very comical and maybe a minor inconvenience. And so that's sort of part of the thesis. But let's scale up because these speech recognition devices are being deployed in a number of other spaces. So in the U.S., for example, they're increasingly being used to automatically transcribe court recordings. They're being used as aggression detectors in prisons as well as schools. And so you can well imagine these are spaces where being misheard or misunderstood can have deadly consequences. Language and how people speak can be a really important marker of power and class. Halcyon says forcing people to speak a certain language or a standardized version of a language 
is one way colonial powers dominated people in her region and worldwide. She sees parallels in how digital technology pushes people to speak in certain ways just to be understood. One of the things that concerns me is the expectation that you speak with a standard accent, whether it be standard English or standard French or any sort of standard language, suggests that anybody who does not speak with that standard accent is misheard or misunderstood. And these are our vulnerable populations who turn up in spaces like prisons and courts of law where they need to be heard and understood accurately. So, you know, it's as important as why, you know, asking that question, why do we need to be heard or understood in person is no less important in the digital space. So, Halcyon, are there ways that you think that technology can be designed differently so that folks who maybe don't speak North American or British English can be understood? So <laughs> your question hits upon past me and current me. <laughs> past me, when I started doing this research, the easy answer would have been yes. We need more representation in these devices, right? If if I can hear and be heard with a Trinidadian accent, surely that would solve the problem. But recently, on a trip home, she was reminded how language is also used as resistance. For instance, by speaking in ways that cannot be understood by oppressors. I started visiting with friends, and I had forgotten how (laughs) we have also used language to subvert colonial authority that other kinds of dialects have emerged, that patois has emerged as a way of subverting. And so the question then arises, what does it mean to give organizations access to that kind of voice data? What kind of power are we handing over? If I am advocating for greater representation of languages and dialects and accents. And so I am in a bit of a conundrum right now, thinking about the kind of research that I do, but more importantly, thinking about what I advocate for. Let's head to New Zealand. That's the sound of the local radio station for the indigenous Maori community in Kataya. Teiku Radio is, is the community voice. Every day we speak to people within the community to tell us about everything, whether it's to talk to us about the climate, the weather, or to talk to us about you know what sorts of foods are in season in terms of hunting and gathering or fishing and what's going on in politics or our health system or you know data sovereignty and artificial intelligence. That's Kayoni Mahalona. He's the chief technology officer of Tehiku Media. That's a Maori community media network with 21 local radio stations. It's been around since the 1990s. Since 2014, Kayoni, who is Hawaiian, and his partner, Peter Lucas Jones, who is Maori, have used the internet, and more recently, AI, in their efforts to reverse the decline of the Maori language, Te Reo Maori. Under colonial rule, speaking the language was forbidden. Now, it's an official language of New Zealand. Speech recognition is just a tool. These AI models are just a tool that enable us to do what we need to do. 
you know, the mission of our organization is about language revitalization and language promotion and cultural restoration and promoting Tereo Māori and, and the culture of, of Māori. So how we do that at our organization is we, we tell stories. We tell stories on the radio. We tell stories through video. We tell stories through live broadcasting. But we've been telling stories for more than 35 years. And a lot of those stories are captured on cassette tapes or VHS tapes. So we're in this process of digitizing those tapes. And now we want to make the content within them available. A few years ago, Tehiku Media was working on a project to transcribe historic broadcasts with elders who could explain the nuances in language and context. Kaoni realized automatic speech recognition, or ASR for short, could help. So as we were working on this project, we were like, wow, this is really hard. If an interview is an hour, it takes at least three hours to transcribe it, right? So we thought, oh, why don't we just train a machine to <laughs> automatically transcribe this for us? Because, hey, you know, Siri existed at the time. ASR was a thing. So surely we could do it in Tereo Māori. From a developer perspective, like, we knew the technology existed. We knew there were open source projects out there we could use. But what we also knew is that this was actually a data problem and that that would be the most important part of this project was not just sort of getting the data, but we knew we had to gather this data in a way in which we could safeguard it and protect it and ensure that it would only be used for the betterment of Maori and Maori things. The data is actually voice recordings of short sentences paired with text. This is what a speech recognition engine, in this case, Mozilla's DeepSpeech, uses to decode what sounds go with which letters. For its data set, Tahiku Media reached out to community groups like traditional dance troops and canoe racing teams and soon gathered over 300 hours of speech. We mobilized the community to read thousands of utterances to help us collect a corpus that would enable us to train an ASR. In doing that, we learned a lot. And one of the things we learned about the community who were pretty much giving their time to support this project was that they wanted real-time feedback on their readings. Kayoni says they realized they could support language learning by giving people immediate feedback on how they pronounce words at the same time that they're donating voice data. We pretty much hacked deep speech and built a real-time pronunciation engine. It's an app that we have called Rongo. It's in the Apple and Google stores. Anyone can download it anywhere in the world. If you'd like to share your data with us to help promote Te Reo Māori. Kaoni says their speech project will make decades of audio recordings more accessible online. One of the things we're looking at is whether there's any climate data embedded in our archives and how that can help us to better mitigate some of the effects of climate change. And you need ASR to actually do that, right? To go through all these archives and then transcribe it and then sort of find the data embedded in that. And, and unless we can document our knowledge, it won't be available for, for our people in the future. I think, you know, that's really the value in what we do with our community, right? We don't do it for our community. We do this with our community. Many big tech companies have been including indigenous languages in their online services. And on the surface, this seems like a good thing. But Kaoni is not so sure. These companies don't really know much about our languages or our cultures. And by simply trying to include us, they could actually do more harm than good to our communities to our languages, especially languages that are in a state of 
revitalization. What we've seen in the past with tools like Translate from companies like Google and Microsoft is the translation uh, doesn't really work very well, but people use the tool and they treat the tool as sort of 100% accurate. But the truth is the algorithms they use or the models they've trained aren't 100% correct. About five years ago, indigenous language speakers started getting offers from a language tech company for $45 to $90 an hour for their voice recordings. It was for an unspecified corporate purpose, but said the goal was to keep languages alive. Kayoni says this approach is extractive and undermines the work of communities. Then, in 2022, OpenAI dropped a new multilingual speech recognition model called Whisper. It was trained on over 600,000 hours of audio from the web, including over 1,300 hours of Te Reo Maori. How they source this data is secret. We were very, very concerned when we heard about Whisper because we thought, oh, well, there we go. You know, no point doing this anymore, right? Because, hey, look, big tech has solved it for us. They've, they've saved our language. Thank you. But we knew that the model was crap. Like, we knew it wasn't going to be good. Even though some of our, like, data scientists kind of had a quick play with it, like, oh, my God, it's scarily good. The ones who had to play with it actually aren't speakers or fluent speakers of Te Reo Māori. So when one of our language experts had a quick look, it was obvious it was absolute trash. And then we quantified, like, <laughs> we quantified that trash. Whisper is open source. But that doesn't make it feel any less like unfair competition to Tehiku Media. We are absolutely now in competition with these tech companies. When we fine-tuned Whisper with our data, our highly curated data of quality Tereo Māori, we were able to create a model that was pretty good at recognizing Tereo Māori. And it did perform better than our previous model, but our previous model was built on very old technology. So I think, I think where we're at now is that we know we can do better than them, despite only having like you know, a handful of people in our team, not much money, and not much compute. Like we've proven we can do better than them for Te Reo Māori. But there's still that existential risk of... When will they be as good as us or better than us? And understanding that when, you also understand how will they achieve that. And the only way they can achieve that is with more language data, more Maori language data. So then we need to ask ourselves, how will they get more language data or from where will they get that data? And that's the concern. Tehiku Media says it's the guardian, not the owner of the data it collects and the software it creates for the community. The organization developed a special license called Kaitiakitanga that requires permission for reuse. This way, the community has control over how they get benefits back. Kayoni says this approach to data sovereignty is modeled after how indigenous communities traditionally act as guardians of their land to protect them from colonization for future generations. And they've taken all our land, right? So what left do we have for them to take? Well, it's our data. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. You know, they've taken everything else. Let's meet someone now who cares deeply about speech recognition in African languages. My name is Kathleen Simenu, and I'm a machine learning fellow at Mozilla Foundation. In my career, I've worked to build grassroots AI communities. 
Kathleen lives in Kalifi, Kenya, and works with Mozilla on Common Voice. It's a platform for crowdsourcing open voice data in over 100 languages. Its mission is to make voice technology more inclusive. Kathleen helps lead efforts to gather data for Kiswahili on Common Voice. This is a language spoken in several East African countries by as many as 200 million people. Until recently, it wasn't a language open source developers could build speech applications for. So Common Voice is important because it's an open data set. Anybody can build on it. Everyone can access the data and therefore the communities can start to build for the languages that they care about or they speak or that those around them speak. My hope is that we open up the path for more voice technology. And by this, I mean, I can tell you a little story. (laughs) At my first job, I worked at a company in the telco space and we basically had products like voice and SMS. And I remember in an election year, we needed to be screening messages to make sure insightful content is not being sent on our platform. In a heated political moment in Kenya, Kathleen wanted to build a tool that would automatically search for messages inciting violence. And in my head, I thought this is going to be super easy. But then I realized that none of the tools that existed were going to be of use because I needed tools for Kiswahili or other local languages spoken in the country. Kathleen's experience of not being able to build a tool in her own language inspired her to do more research on her own. She soon discovered Masakane, a network of researchers working on computer science and linguistics in African languages since 2019. I realized that, okay, there's other people who are interested in these problems. And one of the biggest projects, our first project was a machine translation project. Since then, we've grown to other tasks. There's a lot of work coming out of this community. Many global companies are gaining a foothold on AI across Africa. Networks like Moscane and Deep Learning in Daba want to see AI shaped and owned by Africans. For Kathleen, Working within communities is an opportunity to create voice technologies that respect language diversity. I think the benefit is the fact that the communities are aware of the nuances of the language. So taking the context of speech recognition, I'll give the example that we learn from the West that gender bias is likely, that accent bias is likely, but then we then have to look at an East African context and ask ourselves, okay, what bias is likely here? Working with linguists with local knowledge helped Kathleen understand how Kiswahili was standardized by Christian missionaries during colonization. This knowledge for me made me realize that we should not make the mistake of only building for standardized Kiswahili. There's already this growing gap between the standardized version and the other dialects. And if we're not careful, we're continuing to push these other dialects to extinction. Extinction. It's like AI takes on the role of the colonizer when certain dialects are favored over others. But convincing people to donate their voices isn't easy. So incentivizing participation has been quite difficult. I think one reason is because AI is very much in the media right now, right? And everybody has this perception that people who are working in AI are making loads of money. So whenever we go into spaces and start talking about the work that we're doing and why we want people to contribute to the data and tied to the fact that AI tools can be built, they then want to know, okay, am I going to get paid? 
But in our program, we are not paying people to contribute. So we have to be very creative about how we think about incentives. Like many advocates for open tech in Africa, Kathleen is wrestling with how to build sustainable projects and businesses when the data sets are open. Because big tech uses these resources too. So more projects are considering alternatives to completely open licensing. There's also been talk of creating something like a federation. From the startups, we're learning that, you know, big tech coming into the scene and saying our tools or our resources are multilingual and they cover, you know, this number of African languages has meant that for startups, it's it's harder to get, say, VC funding, right? If you pitch to a VC and they say Kiswahili is on OpenAI's whisper already, why should we give you money? It's a problem that's already solved. So these questions are coming up often. How can we give startups within our network the advantage? These startups are building with the communities. Can we license the data sets such that the startups get access to them? Or maybe not make the data sets open. Have them only open within the network such that these startups can have access to them, but they're not big tech. With more than 7,000 languages worldwide, decisions about voice data today will influence how people communicate tomorrow. A lot more can be done. This goes for big tech and the open source communities getting squeezed by their dominance. Speech recognition is about more than just convenience. For people who depend on AI to recognize their voices at home on the phone or even in court, these systems and the data they're built with reinforce inequality. This is what can be challenged when communities reclaim a voice in AI to build for themselves. Before this episode ends, I've got some sad news to share. Halcyon Lawrence, the first guest in this episode, passed away a few weeks after we spoke. In honor of her legacy, we're glad we could still include her voice in this show. We hear you, Halcyon. Thank you for everything. To learn more about Halcyon and our other guests, please visit our show notes. I'm Bridget Todd. You've been listening to IRL, Online Life is Real Life, an original podcast from Mozilla, the nonprofit behind Firefox. Mozilla, reclaim the internet. Hey, it's me again. I just signed off with reclaim the internet, but what does that mean? To find out, we're turning to some of the 25 digital visionaries who have just received Mozilla's new Rise 25 award. This is Raphael Mimoun. He's the founder of a tech nonprofit called Horizontal. They support journalists and activists with digital security and technology to document human rights abuses. To me, reclaiming the internet means taking back control over the technology we use on a daily basis. I think we're realizing with billionaires buying social networks that we all depend on and that we all cherish and that have been so instrumental in social movements that suddenly we're not in control. And really reclaiming the internet is finding the structures, the infrastructures where we as a community, as a community of users, we really can control and shape the present and the future of the technology we use. That's Raphael Mimoun on how to reclaim the internet. To learn more about Raphael, Horizontal, and the other winners of Mozilla's Rise 25 awards, go to rise25.mozilla.org. Now it's your turn. Go reclaim the internet.